On December 17, 1903, was a pretty monumental event that has uh, dramatically impacted all of our lives, whether you realize it or not. You see, that's the day that Orville and Wilbur Wright made the first ever flight in the air when they were in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. 59 seconds, their contraption, I don't know if you could call it a plane back then, uh, was in the air and it traveled over 852 feet. Now they got so excited, they ran back to the home and they created a telegram and sent it to their sister who was back in Ohio. The telegram said this, It said, flight first sustained today, 59 seconds, hope to be home by Christmas. So imagine their sister gets so excited, right? Gets gets super into it, runs down to the local newspaper, hands the telegram to the editor. The day after they took flight for the first time, this is the headline he chose to run. This is the headline. Popular local bicycle merchants hope to be home for the holidays. Talk about like missing the point of a story, right? And maybe you've been there before. Maybe there's a time in which you had great news and somebody misunderstood it and took it for something else. Now, if you thought that was a blunder, what if I told you there was a group of people for hundreds upon hundreds of years, they knew that the most important event throughout history was going to come their way. They knew roughly when it was going to happen and how it was going to happen. They had books about it. They had meetings about it. They had discussions about this event. And this event came and went, and a good portion of those people either completely missed it or wrote it off. And I'm not talking about things like the overthrow of the Ming Dynasty or the fall of the Roman Empire. I'm not talking about the emancipation of the slaves in America or even the end of the Cold War. What I am talking about is the way that many Jewish people responded to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, know it or not, believe it or not, the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in human history because of its eternal implications, and it's an event that you yourself have to make a decision about. And that's the idea we're going to dive into today. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 25 this morning. We are in our 25th week through our 28-week series, teaching chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. As you turn there, Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's a continuation of the gospel of Luke. At this point in the book of Acts, we are about three, four, five-ish years after the reascension of Jesus. So Jesus has lived, died. He rose from the grave. He has gone to heaven. And now for the last couple years, we've seen the early church kind of get started. And as you're turning there to Acts chapter 25, you can get out your sermon notes, follow along with us. You could do so on the app as well too. Uh, just a quick, quick announcement. Starting a week from tomorrow, November 14th, we are having a formation class. One of the things we got from our spiritual growth survey was people are asking, how do I share my faith with my friends, coworkers, family? And so Samuel, our spiritual formation pastor, is putting that on starting a week from tomorrow. You can find out more about that on the app or the website. So here's where we are, though, in Acts chapter 25, before we kind of dive in. Two years has essentially passed from the end of one chapter before the next. And the Apostle Paul is still on this trial in which he didn't really do anything as a result, but there's some false accusations coming his way. And we talked about last week how this trial has gone from one person to the next to the next. And then it gets to this man by the name of Festus, which is a really good name. If you're in the neighborhood of trying to find out what to name your kid, might I suggest Festus? I think it would be super fun. 
And so Festus does some of his own homework. He goes to Jerusalem and he meets with some of these Jewish leaders who are like, yeah, we don't like this Paul guy. He's the worst. Let's take him out. So much so, he learned that they had this plan. Let's try to get the trial moved back to Jerusalem. And then while he's here, we'll, just, we'll, we'll be like the mafia. We'll take him out. Nobody will have to know. So he learns about this, goes back to Caesarea, gives the plan kind of the same thing over and over again. Okay, we've got this guy, Paul, the Jewish people, the the leaders of the Jewish people, they're really mad at him. Paul doesn't really seem like he's done anything wrong. They don't have any proof, but Paul's also not really changing his case here. And so Paul, he looks at Paul. What do you want to do, bro? And Paul's like, I want to go to Caesar. I'm a Roman citizen. Take me to Caesar. And to Caesar, you shall go. So Paul starts to make his way. They're making arrangements to get there. And we get introduced to another person to oversee this court ruling. His name's King Agrippa. And this is where we pick up this morning. Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 15. It says this. It says, when I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked him to be condemned. Verse 16 says, I told them that it is not a Roman custom that I hand anyone over before they have been faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. He's talking about Paul. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss of how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held uh, over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And he replied, tomorrow you will hear him. This is two years of this circling around. The Jews saying, we we have this guy. We want him to be treated like a thug, a rebel, an insurrectionist, a convict. Do something about him. And they said, great, we take these matters seriously. What has he actually done? What proof do you have? Whose blood can you show us? And they said, oh, we don't really know anything. We just just don't really like what he's saying. We don't really like what he's going around preaching. And so finally, in chapter 25, verse 19, it's beautiful because someone finally gives us a summation of what the whole problem was. 25, verse 19, I want to read this again because this is where we're focusing today. It says, instead, instead of him being violent, instead of him being someone who caused a ruckus, instead of him being a rebel, it says, instead, they had some points of dispute with him. The Jewish leaders and Paul the Apostle about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Simply put, there's a disagreement over who Jesus is and if the resurrection actually happened. This passage gives us three groups of people to kind of see. We have these pagans, these Greeks, these Romans. We have the Jewish people, either ethnically or or converts into ancient Judaism, and Paul kind of representing Christians. And it's all over this idea. All three of them have a different view, a different approach to this point of dispute, as he calls it. Now, your translation might say this superstition, as Agrippa refers to it, is because it's the Greek word anastasis. It's this word that means there is a, a life after death that is eternal. 
Now, this isn't the same as uh, what you might call revivification. That was something they knew and they were aware of. Somebody lived, died, they rose back to life again, then they died again. Two births, essentially two deaths. That's not what is being said here. It's also not reincarnation, which is the belief that you live, die, and then you come back to life again as someone or something else. That's also not what's being discussed. It's this idea of resurrection, that you lived, died, rose again for all eternity. And so the first group of people, the the Greeks, the Romans, the pagans, they believed this about the resurrection, and it was they didn't really believe it was a thing. You see, in the Roman history, if you will, there was no concept of resurrection. And so when we talk about these points of dispute, that's one approach. One group of people thought it this way, like the Greco-Roman, the pagan approach is, well, frankly, the resurrection is not in their history. It just wasn't a thing. They refer to it as a superstition. You know, think about some of the superstitions that that we have in life. Those are the fun ones that we maybe joke around with or just write off from time to time. You know, when you're you're wanting good luck, what do you do? You cross your fingers, right? We know it doesn't really do anything. How about this one? Fill it in for me. Don't step on a crack or you'll break your mama's back. You got to say with a little hood in you though, right? If you were to go to other countries, if you go to like the, the country of Japan, they have a superstition that, uh, that I believe that you don't put your chopsticks vertically next to each other because it looks similar to the word for death. If you were to go to a Middle Eastern country like Syria, you would notice that they don't sell yo-yos because they believe that yo-yos were the reason that drought happened in the past. You see, this, this whole idea of resurrection was just purely a superstition. They didn't even have a word for it, so they thought nothing of it. That's the first group of people. The second group of people were the Jews. And the Jews had a word. They believed in the resurrection, but they believed that the resurrection was at the end of history. You see, the ancient Jewish faith and Judaism today believes there will indeed be a resurrection. But that resurrection will come at the end of the story in which God will raise all of his people, the Jewish people, ethnically and or converts, back up to life and they will reign on this earth supreme in a kingdom the way that the world was supposed to run. So they believe in a resurrection and a resurrection that will bring power, it will bring prestige, it will bring prosperity, but they believe it is at the end of history. But what I kind of like to think about is, is, you know when you have a kid, or if you have a kid, or maybe you work with kids, and they do the thing where it's like, I can't see you, so you can't see me, right? Super good logic makes total sense. In some ways, that's what I like to think about the Jewish people. They were saying, well, well, because we don't see or believe in the resurrection, therefore it hasn't happened yet. That's the second group. The third group of people, though, is Paul, or the Christians. And we would say we absolutely believe in the resurrection and that it happened in the middle of history. Now, not like chronological middle. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus means however much time before there's going to be. That's not what we would say. But it happened and life is still being lived. Because here's the thing. Is that everyone has to make a decision about the resurrection of Jesus. The Romans didn't get it. The Jews didn't want to accept it, but as Christians, we say everything hinges on it. The great philosopher, theologian, author C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And that importance of the Christian faith hinges on one thing. 
One event, and that is the life, death, but most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus. You see, that's why I entitled today's passage, today's text, today's sermon, Life's Most Important Question or Questions. It's one question that essentially can be asked in two different ways. Now, if I were to ask you, what's the best decision you've made in life? You might say something like, well, I made the decision to marry my spouse. Or we had that decision to, to have that child, although if you're like me, sometimes like that was not the world's best choice. You might say, hey, I took the risk of starting that company and it's paid off handsomely for me and my family. It's been great. If I asked you, what's the worst decision you've ever made in your life? If your answer might be like, mine's like, how much time you got? We, we could be here all day telling you all, the bad, all the, the bad decisions I've made. If I ask you just like, hey, what's like a good decision you've made in your life? What's something maybe you're proud of? You might say, hey, I started going to the gym to get today. I hate myself. I cut out gluten, but hey, it's something that I had to do for myself. It's all good, right? Or you might say something along those lines of like, here's a good decision. But what about the most important decision? One decision that if you make it, it should have impacts and influence over everything else in life. You see, every single one of us, yourself included, whether you realize it or not, know it or not, the answer to that question is the same for all of us. Did the resurrection of Jesus happen or not? Either something happened or something didn't happen. And if proven false... The whole idea of Christianity, Christian faith, discipleship, it all falls apart. Like, think about how vulnerable the Christian faith is. And I'm a pastor saying this, so, 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 so kind of roll, roll with me. Think about how vulnerable the Christian faith is. Our faith is built upon the resurrection, one event in history. Our faith isn't built on the otherworldly or the supernatural. Hindus, Hindus and Buddhists, they, you know, they, they, they have this, this faith and this religion built on something in, in another realm of spirituality. Otherworldliness, whether it's forms of consciousness or enlightenment, and it has implications. You can't really prove it. You can't really deny it. And so there's not a whole lot of argument there. If you were to go to, to Judaism or, or to Islam, Everything about their faith is built on, most importantly, this idea of practicing law, practicing rules and regulations, whether that's the Torah, the Mishnah, the Quran, respectively, whatever their book may be, but the Christian faith, built on one thing and one thing only. Did Jesus Christ raise from the grave or not? That's it. If someone could provide his bones, the whole thing crumbles. If somebody could, could provide proof that the resurrection did not happen, it all falls apart. You see, the Christian faith is not built on new age concepts because we don't have anything new. The Christian faith is not built on better ideas because oftentimes our ideas are countercultural. It's not built on stronger morality because there are religions that hold to being a better person even more so than the Christian faith does. All someone would have to do is say, here's the bones of Jesus. And Christianity would just disappear as it should. And it comes down, it comes down to this, is that Christianity survives on the actuality of the resurrection of Jesus. There was this point of dispute. There was this superstition. Well, did it happen or not? See, Christianity does not survive on the teachings of Jesus alone. 
as good as they are. It doesn't survive on the miracles of Jesus, as, as mind-blowing as they are. Christianity cannot survive on the death of Jesus, despite how heroic it is by itself. So you want to know what the most important question you and I have to ask ourselves at some point in our life and make a decision on? It's one question, twofold. So here's the first question is, who is Jesus? It's the first question. Who is Jesus? And you might follow that up. And did he resurrect or not? You see, Paul and the Jews, they agreed on Jesus a lot. They agree that he was born in Bethlehem, that he, he was a Nazarite. They, they believe that he was a carpenter. He had siblings. They believe that he honored the Torah. They believe uh, similarly that, that faith in a substitute is a way to atone for your sins. They believe in a second or a last Adam would come to be the Messiah to, to save the world. Paul and the Jews agree a lot about Jesus and the Christian faith. The one thing, the major thing though, that they did not was Paul says... I believe unequivocally that Jesus is who he said he was and he rose from the grave and the Jews say he absolutely is not that man. You know, my question is always, why didn't the Jewish people just ignore Paul? Why didn't they just say, he's just a crazy dude, just write him off? Like we're like almost into the holiday season and, and every single family, I'm convinced, has that like crazy uncle, like crazy uncle Al, it's like, hey, Hey, Uncle Al's coming over today. Don't bring up politics, okay? And if he gets onto that soapbox, okay, just kind of, you know, just, just get the conversation. Or, or don't bring, you know, we have crazy Aunt Susan coming over. Don't ask her about that one thing because you know she'll just talk your ear off. And if she does, just kind of smile and nod to get it right. You guys all have one of those people in your family, yeah? If you're like, we don't know, we don't have one of those people. It's probably because you're that person. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> and you know what happens with that person? You just learn to ignore them. They can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And then, okay, finally I'm going to go back and watch football. Or what do you know, there's still some pie i got to go eat. You know, oh, what's that, honey? You need me to do something over here? And then you find a way out of the conversation. Why didn't the Jews just treat Paul like a crazy uncle? It's because they knew they couldn't. Because they knew enough about the prophecies and what the Old Testament said about the resurrection of man. And they knew that if true, it changed everything. You see, when it comes to the resurrection, you can't play the crazy uncle card on it. It's too important. Put it this way, there is no middle ground when it comes to the resurrection. It either happened or it didn't. There is no middle ground. It's either the most important thing of, of, or of absolutely no importance. There is no middle ground. Either it changes everything about the way I live, the way I think, the way I function, how I schedule my life, or it's just a nice little fairy tale. The resurrection has to be something other than, I don't know, it's no big deal. Oh, whatever, just shrug it off. Oh, it's just another one of those crazy little superstitions. We don't have to pay anything to it. And so if you're here with us today, because there's many people who come to our church who have yet to make a decision about Jesus. And if that's you here today, I just want to say this to you. We are so glad that you are here. Because we strive to be a church where doubts and questions aren't written off or aren't seen as something bad or negative. But rather we provide space and environment and opportunities to wrestle with that as a community. And so we hope that you feel loved. 
and valued and cared for and welcome here, even though you might not believe what the church, First Christian Church believes at this point. We are just super glad that you're here. We hope that you will wrestle with those questions with us. Give us the opportunity. We'd love to set up a coffee or, 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 or after service or any of those types of things. But if you are here with us, And you would raise your hand, I'm not asking you to do it, but you would raise your hand and say, I believe that Jesus not only lived, I believe that he not only lived a perfect life, I believe that he not only died on the cross, but I believe that he rose from the grave three days later. As your pastor, as the person who is called to show some spiritual authority in your life, what I want to say to you and to myself is for us all to consider, are we treating that truth with the life-transforming work it desires to be in our lives? Everything hinges on the resurrection. That's why the Apostle Paul will later write to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the Apostle Paul, who's in the book of Acts. We've been reading and studying about him. He writes this later about the resurrection. This is what he says in Acts chapter, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Verse 20, though, he says, but if Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul even writes, he's saying, it's that important. It either changes everything or it is completely useless. You see, what Paul is getting at here, what the Jews were presuming, what King Agrippa and the Romans failed to grasp is everyone must either accept and receive the truth about the resurrection or they must reject it. But that is a decision that has to be reached by you and you alone. You cannot choose to be neutral. You can't choose to hope and drift your way in. You can't earn it through a different route. You can't admit, oh, it's just some compelling evidence, but I'll figure that out later. And most importantly, no one can make that decision for you. A parent cannot make that decision for you. A spouse cannot make that decision for you. A child cannot make that decision for you. I cannot make that decision for you. You must decide for yourself. Who is Jesus? And more importantly, did he raise from the grave? That's why Jesus says he's going to knock on everyone's heart for them to make a decision. Revelation chapter three, verse 20, Jesus says this. He says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. 
Jesus has knocked on the door of your life, the door of your heart, so to speak. Think about this kind of implication, this illustration Jesus has drawn up. Imagine you lived in a home, okay? But you didn't own the land, you didn't build the home, you didn't design the home. But someone's just letting you live in it rent-free, and they come to the door and they, yeah, hey, it's uh, the master of like the, the land and the house and everything. Do you mind if I come in? Let's have a little chat. I'd like to just kind of move in with you, if that's cool. And then at first you're like, okay, well, what kind of Netflix, are we going to share a Netflix account? Because that's kind of, we've got to get that out of the way first. So, no, I want, I, want, I want to come in, I want, I, want, I, want to, I want to live with you. Some of us have the audacity to respond, <laughs> that's funny. I know, I know it's your land, your house, blah, blah, blah. Why don't you just continue to pay the mortgage and I'll just still live here? Now, some of us, how we, how we treat the truth about Jesus. Jesus, yeah, you go ahead and pay my debt. You wash my life clean of sin, but I'm just going to go on living how I want to see my life lived. Yeah, it's the master. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. Hey, you mind if I live with you for a little bit? Um, how about, hey, yeah, I've got this, like, super sick garage. Like, it's like quadruple car, extra deep, you know, all that type of stuff. He's like, well, I know, I built it, you know. He's like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. So how about you just take the garage? Because, you know, I'm, I'm a busy person. And I'm going to be in and out a lot. And so so, so, so why, I don't want you to be an inconvenience on my life, but, but when I have time to see you, I'll just drop in, we'll hang, you know, maybe we'll play some ping pong, maybe some foosball. It'll be super fun. We'll chill from time to time. But, you know, just, I'm in and out a lot. I'm a pretty busy person. Hey, hey, it's Jesus. Do you mind if I, mind if I come, in, come into your house? Oh, hey, Jesus, great to see you. Yeah, 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 come on in. Pick any room that you want. But don't you dare change anything. I've got it just the way I want. I've finally organized everything the way I have it designed. And, and so, so you can go ahead and come in, but don't you dare change a thing. So I ask you again, who is Jesus? And most importantly, do you believe in the resurrection or not? Second question is similar to it, but it has a different implication. Question two isn't just who is Jesus, but it's who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to you personally? See, I think Paul is the best person to give the answer to this question. He goes from being an enemy of Christ to being a friend of Christ, a persecutor of the way as it's called, to being a proclaimer of the way, from hating Jesus to loving Jesus, from inflicting suffering to being a sufferer. Why the change? Is it because he learned some new facts? Is it because he, he read and updated Wikipedia? No, it's because he had a personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. It's like the difference between knowing about someone and being close with a person. Let me give you an example. Uh, let me show you a picture here of, of uh, someone who, who I know a lot about. His name is Kobe Bryant, okay? Um, now, I'm not going to go so far to say he's the greatest basketball player of all time. I understand. I'm in the Midwest, all that type of stuff. Definitely top five guy. But I am a humongous Kobe Bryant fan. So much so I named my dog Kobe after him. And I could tell you so many facts. 
I can tell you where he grew up. I can tell you the fact that most people think he grew up in Philly, but he actually lived in Italy because his dad was a professional basketball player. He moved to Philly, went to Lower Marion High School, and then was drafted. And most people say, yeah, to the Los Angeles Lakers. En contraire, my frere. Which are the Charlotte Hornets. Well, what else happened after that? Well, he's traded his, to the Lakers. His whole entire career was them. I can tell you about how he chose and why he chose Adidas as his first sponsorship because of Nike, because of this man, Sonny Vaccaro, and this long story there. I can tell you that, well, he had scoring titles in 2006, 2007, MVP in 2008. He won five championships, three with Sha- uh, Shaquille O'Neal, two with Pau Gasol, and on and on and on and on. I can tell you all the facts that you want to know about this man here. But if someone were to say, well, Eric, what was he like? How did he drink his coffee? He's known for having this bulldog attitude and mentality, the sheer determination that wowed people. Where did that come from? I don't know. I just know facts and stuff about him. I know about him, but I actually know him. Question one, who is Jesus? Can you give me the facts? Can you give me the knowledge? But question two, why should I listen to you about what you know? Question one says, do you have the facts straight? Did you get all your research in order? But question two is the convincing proof about why I should listen, about how that has translated, made the 18-inch trek from your head to your heart. And the biggest thing and the scariest thing that I see as a pastor, that I see as a Christian today, is we see a lot of people who get question number one right. Who is Jesus? Who is the son of the living God? Let me tell you some Bible verses. He lived a perfect life for my sins. He rose from the grave three days later. He spent, I don't know, a couple weeks, I think it was like 40 days, walked through a wall, did some cool miracles. His his friend Lazarus died, and he cried, and he brought him back to life. I know a lot of people who get the first question right, but it hasn't translated, well, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? If Jesus is alive, if the resurrection has happened, it has to be the most important and influential thing that's ever existed in our history. That's why Peter writes this, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He says, It would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed to them. Jesus cannot be these things. Jesus cannot be just a good moral teacher. Because he claimed to be God. And someone can't claim to be God and have everything in their mind kind of straight. He can't be just one God among many. Because he denounced the others. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He can't be just an important historical figure. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. He can't be just a really, really charismatic leader because he couldn't talk himself out of being killed on a cross for having done nothing. So who is Jesus? 
And who is Jesus to you? Let me close with this thought. And so our salvation is more than just believing. It's living the life that he commanded. Who is Jesus to you? Jesus is either dead or alive. His resurrection is either truth or it is a fairy tale. If Jesus has, in fact, died and the resurrection is not real, we continue to welcome ourselves in a dark and hopeless world. Despair will only get worse. There is no hope. And you can continue to try and fill it with more fame or more sex or more money or more purpose. You fill in the blank, but it's only going to get worse. But if Jesus has indeed rose from the grave, as I believe that that is in fact an event that happened, that despair turns to joy, that darkness turns to light, eternal death becomes eternal life troubles and the hardships and the pain even though they come our way they are no match for the glory that is to come when we live eternally with him so if you are here this morning and and you are trying to determine ask those questions wrestle with those doubts if you're this morning and you're saying how do I do this believe this Christian this discipleship thing it begins by proclaiming I am a sinner But I believe that the Son of God lived a perfect life, but he rose from the grave three days later. And in that power, in what I believe to be true, he has given me a new way of living. That might be where you are this morning. You might be here this morning and Jesus is knocking on your heart saying, let me in. And don't just give me the garage. Don't give me the doghouse out back. Don't make me go run around with your chickens. Let me in. Because I want to live with you because I will live eternally. Will you live with me? And for those of you who can can confidently say that is a decision that you have made, you could stand boldly and say, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, that he is the resurrected Yeshua Messiah. Then I challenge us all, let him have his way. Let him transform anything because he knows and his way is best. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship our resurrected King this morning? Lord, we pause before you this morning. We offer up our prayers. We offer up our tithes. We offer up our time. We offer up this this moment, this, this hour to worship you. And we worship you because you are the resurrected Savior. That we believe it to be an event that changed all eternity an event based out of your love, an event based out of your grace, an event based out of your compassion and your mercy and your will and your desire to be just. And so God, we thank you. May we worship you wholly this morning. If there's anyone this morning who is feeling that knock for the first time, I pray, Lord, that that your spirit Reveal that. I pray that your spirit convict them. I pray that they see the life that you have lived, the life that you died, and the life that you've risen again, that you've given as a free gift to each and every one of us. I pray that they believe 
And that belief translates to a changed heart because of a changed eternity. We worship you.